Welcome to From Russia with Blood, your source of gruesome, highly disturbing, and unbelievable but true crime stories from behind the Soviet curtain. Join our investigation as we go into the shadows to cast light on the nightmarish darkness of the Soviet past, if you dare. The episode you are about to hear contains material of an explicit sexual and criminal nature that some listeners may find extremely disturbing. This podcast is not suitable for minors. Please proceed at your own discretion. An hour passed, and finally Kay saw a green suburban train approach the station. She got in went past two smoking drunks and sat alone in a corner by the window. The trip should take about three hours. Trees passing in the window made her head spin, and for a moment she was afraid she was going to be sick. Then the sickness gave way to exhaustion. Her eyes closed. The blood dripping from her panties trickled between the polished wooden planks of the bench onto the floor and disappeared behind a huge, rusty box under the bench, leaving no trace. She fell asleep. An engineer inspecting his train before taking it to the depot found the corpse. Abortions were frowned upon in the Soviet Union. After all, the party in the motherland needed new workers and soldiers to build the bright future, to protect it and to share it. Once there was a period of time when a woman actually needed written permission from her party cell to get an abortion, and the unfortunate woman would have to explain her pregnancy, who the father was, the need for the abortion, and her immoral behavior in general. So little wonder that, although often dangerous, illegal abortions offering privacy and no comments in one's personal file were sought after and often found. Information about a good doctor who proved understanding, fast, and competent was passed from girl to girl in factory hostels, from friend to friend in the smoking room of an industrial design bureau and between officers' wives on military bases. It was on just such a military base that the wife of a certain non-commissioned officer, M, first became aware of, and then told her NCO husband about, an unusual abortion procedure. When the first female cosmonaut candidates were selected in the 1960s, one of them happened to be in an early stage of pregnancy, and one of the tests involved being launched in an ejection seat simulator, the same as those used in fighter jets. After the test, the girl was no longer expecting. When a modern passenger jet takes off in Paris or Atlanta, 
an average passenger experiences a g-force, or gravitational force equivalent, of 1.5 to 2.5 g. Now, a pilot ejected from a fighter jet has to survive at least 18 g. They remain alive because the force lasts for a very short period of time. A fetus, on the other hand, is simply torn out from its uterus at 18 g. And NCOM was in charge of exactly such an ejection seat simulator that was used to train army pilots at the base where he worked. Needless to say, he jumped at this new opportunity of earning some extra cash. Ladies in need learned about his services by word of mouth. He was not greedy, and no questions were asked. Actually, though, he did ask some questions. Before the operation, he always asked the woman to use the toilet and to do at least number one, ideally number two as well, as having to wash the seat was not something he particularly enjoyed. Also, after the operation, he would check for signs of a brain concussion, and if everything was okay, he personally accompanied the patient to the rail station. Never further, for his wife had strong views on his spending free time with other women. So how did Kay end up in NCOM's simulator seat? Romance. Wild, hot, breathtaking romance. People in the Soviet Union could not travel to the Riviera, could not go skiing in the Alps, could not take a Mediterranean cruise. People living in the Central European part of the socialist bloc had at their disposal the cold but amber-rich shores of the Baltic Sea, and sometimes the warm, salty waters washing the shores of Yugoslavia, but not Soviet citizens. Rather, they had for their leisure the resorts of the Black Sea. Every Soviet citizen spent their vacation at the Black Sea at least once, went the saying, which, like everything else in that country, was a lie. But going to the beach was indeed the dream of every family. But how to realize the dream? A medium to higher ranking Communist Party member could get a putyovka, a travel voucher, easily enough. A regular worker, civil servant or teacher, could get a putyovka through their trade union committee. But there was always too much demand and there were never enough vouchers. So, either by being a friend of the trade union secretary or by giving the right presents to the right people could one increase one's chances of taking that coveted trip. But you could still get to the beach without a voucher. You could just buy a plane or train ticket and go. But there was always more demand than available tickets, so you had to be on 
really good terms with the neighbor's cousin's friend who worked at the state-owned travel agents. You could find a private room, the cost of which increased as its distance from the beach decreased. Or just be a wild camper, a dikar, take a tent and a sleeping bag, set up your camp, and problem solved. Basking in the hot sun, luxuriating in the warm sea water, drinking cheap wine and eating plenty of fresh fruit, dancing until late at night under the bright southern stars, finally being able to take it easy, living it up like rich capitalists in the Caribbean. After all, one would save for at least a year, if not several years for such a trip. But once you were there, you indulged yourself completely and did not count every penny or kopeck. And last, but not least, maybe even having the chance to fall in love. We do not know how Kay met her lover, but we know it was on the Black Sea. A holiday affair blossomed into a passionate romance, cut short only by the length of the stay, a 15-day state-guaranteed paid holiday, possibly up to 36 days if you managed to collect enough overtime and days off. Let's be fair, even up to 60 if you were in the military. The feeling of love did not die, though, after the two lovers parted and returned to their homes. First Kay, then some time later her lover. It turned out that they were practically neighbors. He lived in Leningrad, Kay in a little town some two hours' train journey away. She longed to prolong the paradise of the seaside romance. He gave her a call some two weeks after he got back. Needless to say, he would not have even considered keeping the relationship going had they been from opposite ends of the country that covered one-sixth of the globe. But two hours was not a challenge. Kay went to visit him in Leningrad and spent many a weekend at his dark flat with its enormously high ceilings and old furniture. And when she realized she was pregnant, she waited a month before telling him, and then it all changed. He suddenly announced that he was engaged to be married, and her visits were no longer welcome, and she had to take care of things herself. Kay had initially planned to keep the baby, but after five months, her love and previous attraction had totally disintegrated, and she started to look for ways to sort the situation out. In rank and function, an NCO or a non-commissioned officer differs from country to country and from military branch to military branch. For our story, though, the Soviet Army NCO or Prapershik was in a class of its own. A conscript would go to the army for two years adorned only with plain shoulder boards, and, depending on his performance and the goodwill of his commanding officers, 
could attain a rank of sergeant or even a petty officer and go home after the two-year period was over. A commissioned officer would go to an academy, receive a shoulder board with a single stripe and two little stars, and dream of becoming a general one day. It was a lifetime career of transfers and adding stars to the shoulder boards. Now, a proper chick had plain shoulder boards like a soldier's with little stars on them like an officer's. Neither a soldier nor an officer. They would get training in a special proper chic academy and settle to serve permanently in one locale. They were in it for life, and there was no way for them to become an officer. And to put the old soldier's aphorism another way, having a whore for a daughter beats having a proper chic for a son. They were just there to stay, and did all the jobs that were too mundane for officers, but too important to be trusted to an 18-year-old boy. They knew everyone and everything. So, little wonder that our proper chic M was able to arrange the passage of female visitors to and from the base simulator with ease. Kay's prospects looked very bleak indeed. She was more than five months pregnant, which meant that all legal access to an abortion was already impossible. But she did remember a friend who used to talk about a guy somewhere in an army base not far from where she lived who could perform an abortion much better than any gynecologist. And he was cheap, three to ten rubles, quite affordable even with a mean Soviet salary of 120 rubles. He never touched you or pried into your business, and he never asked any questions. The friend did not know the name or have contact details, but she told Kay to go to the town and find the kindergarten for officers' children and ask there. Kay took a day off work, went to the town, and found the kindergarten. The very first teacher she asked knew at once who Kay was looking for, and with an understanding and encouraging smile, told her to wait, went inside, and made a phone call. She came out a few minutes later and told Kay to walk straight along the path until she reached a concrete fence topped with barbed wire, turn left, and keep walking until she got to a green gate with a red star, where she would be expected. And so off Kay went, and was met by Prapershik M. M took her to the building where the ejection seat was set up. It reminded one of a ride in an amusement park, a tall column with a pilot's chair at the base. The chair itself was maneuvered along a rail that was attached to the column. M escorted Kay to the toilet and waited gallantly outside, ensuring no one entered while she was inside. Then he took her to the chair, helped her into the seat, fastened the safety straps, and explained how to hold her head and where to put her hands. Once he got settled in his control booth, he asked Kay if she was ready and pressed the button. The chair flew upwards. 
everything went black. The girl felt as if not only her womb but her heart itself were being ripped out. The chair stopped suddenly at the top of the rail. When Kay's sight returned, she imagined she was at the very top of the world and thought that, had M not fastened the safety belts, she would have been thrown above the huge hangar and right into the middle of the airfield. Slowly and smoothly, the chair went down. Kay heard a ringing in her ears and tasted blood in her mouth. She touched her teeth. They were intact, but her finger was coated with blood. She should have paid more attention to M's instructions. She had bitten herself. She also felt her bottom getting wet. After the chair came to rest at the base of the rail, M asked if she was all right or if one more flight was needed. Kay assured him once was enough. After M unbuckled the safety straps, she apologized to him and stuck her hand between her legs. But the wetness she felt was not urine, it was blood. And then she realized she had not taken any cotton wool or sanitary napkins with her. The oily and dirty rags M found were immediately rejected. Then he dug up some rough cloth strips, but they were too coarse to absorb any blood. And then the prappershik noticed a stack of old sheets of paper. Kay decided to put a couple into her panties to staunch the flow of blood. M asked the girl if she felt sick and if her head was spinning. As both answers were negative, he decided there was no concussion and accompanied Kay to the gate and she went to the station to wait for the train. M's main mistake, apart from using army equipment for the wrong purposes, was that, although he did ask his visitors how they felt after the operation, he never asked one important question, that is, the gestational age. As we know, Kay was five months pregnant, and the Operation caused massive bleeding. The poor girl bled to death on the train back home. And Prappershik M? The old sheets of paper found on the dead body proved to be pages from the user manual for the ejection seat, together with the secret stamp and the number of the Prappershik's regiment. You have been listening to an episode of From Russia with Blood. It has been carefully researched and produced for you by the Hamovniki brothers. No matter how you found us or what interests brought you here, we're grateful to you for giving us your time. And please keep listening. From Russia with Blood is entirely listener-supported. Go to coffee.com forward slash FWRB, that's ko-fi.com, forward slash FWRB, for more information. Contributors get exclusive access to episode scripts and extras, including Hamovniki Zastalon, informal reflections, conversations, and insights into the culture of the times. 
You can follow From Russia with Blood on your preferred podcast platform for more unbelievably gruesome and previously unknown stories of true crime from behind the Soviet curtain.